Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, June 19th. On this episode, we are joined by another great guest. He is Chris Welsh from In This League. You know him on Twitter, at IsItTheWelsh. You probably heard him on the Prospect One podcast as well. Welsh, how you doing today? Oh, my friends, I'm doing pretty dang good. Outside of, you know, the world collapsing and no baseball. And we got baseball, we don't have baseball. Outside of that, I'm doing fantastic, and I'm glad to be here with both of you. It's been such a miserable roller coaster this week, and I've tried to play defense against it by on Monday when it seemed like baseball was going away forever, uh, sheltering myself and, and saying it's not as bad as everyone's making it out to be. And then... Later in the week, when it looked like a deal was imminent, telling myself, no, it's not. It just can't be. It's closer than it was, but it's not as close as everyone says it is. And that's helped me avoid the highest highs and the lowest lows. But even with that coping mechanism, this has still been a terrible week to be a baseball fan. Yeah, I. Um, it's probably the worst week. And I think that's like a really hard gauge for anybody to say because think of all of the bad weeks we've had stacked on top of each other just <laughs> left and right and I've kind of been the same way I've been very Pollyanna about it I've um I've stuck to my guns about you know even months and months ago saying there will be baseball you know we had we had a lot of good guests come on our shows uh the shows I do it in this league and say that they didn't think baseball smart smartest people in the industry some of the most popular saying i don't think they'll be baseball and i'd stick to my guns and say they'll be baseball they're going to figure it out and then you know we would continuously keep working through these things and it would get bad and it would get better and it would just keep going and each time i've held through and kept my percentages above 50% that i say there will be baseball but the you know what's around us the landscape around us is getting uglier and uglier it's like it, it almost reminds me of like a um post-apocalyptic like like a cartoon you know how like someone would be in like a little tiny bubble and then they would open up the bubble and everything around them is destroyed and destruction and you just like that's how i've been just trying to hold uh you know hold tight but this is the worst of the worst weeks because it seems so logical that things were set up coming off of these drop down dates. They, they meet in person. Manford and Tony Clark met out here where I live in Arizona in person. Jeff Passan even goes out to say, we have a deal. And then it just is thrown right back in our face. So this has been the worst. This has been the worst of the worst weeks uh, in my eyes. Yeah. How are you holding up in all this Beller? Yeah. And we're still sitting here with them going back and forth, 60 games, 70 games, 65 seems like an obvious midpoint, but it seemed, but that maybe isn't going to be so easy. We've got a piece from Ken Rosenthal on The Athletic talking about why 65 isn't as easy as it might seem mathematically, and it just gets to a point where it's, you know, I mean, the three of us are huge baseball fans and draw at least part of our livings from there being actual baseball being played, and even we're tired of it, right? So just imagine the person who just watches baseball as an escape for some entertainment. They followed whatever team they followed. Maybe they play fantasy. Hopefully they play fantasy if they're listening to this. And, and like, how, how, how able are they to keep up with all this? How able are they to not be beaten down and tired by it, especially when you see all the other sports, hopefully, fingers crossed, returning on the horizon? It, it's just been such a tiresome set of uh, negotiations. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're sitting here recording this on Friday morning. I hope we can all go into Friday happy hour cheersing a return to baseball and an, and a, an agreement come to by uh, the league and the Players Association. 
And I'm worried about the longevity of the sport, too. You know, it's such a bummer. You know, I was talking with you guys earlier in the week, and I was excited when, I, I want to say it was like Wednesday or whatever it was when the meeting happened, Tuesday or Wednesday, because I was like, this is great. You know, they're, they got a deal. I'm going to get to get on with my buddies. We're going to be at the Athletic. We're going to talk. We're, we're going to have, like, all the positivity. We're going to have momentum. People are going to want to check back in. And I'm like, what a great, what a great timing. You go Welsh right on great timing. <laughs> and then right back in. And I'm, I'm legitimately, and I've been talking about it a lot, uh, wherever I can, I'm worried about the longevity of the sport. I know it's very like every generation, every five or 10 years, someone's like, you know, baseball, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, with what has happened here, <clears throat> you're right. There's a deterioration, I think of common fans, but we also have the CBA that's coming up. So between what's happening right now and what's going to happen within the next, you know, I don't know, 18 months, uh, maybe leading into next season or coming into the season after, because technically the CBA expires in 2021, it's going to be the nastiest of nasty negotiations, I believe, with what is ahead right now. And if this is setting the precedent for where the CBA is going to go, as Pollyanna as I've been about the entire process, I still am like really worried. I just like, let's get this done. Can we just get these 50 games so I can put all of my anxiety to the future? Because I don't want baseball to be a, you know, a, a troublesome thing for people, that other sport. I don't want baseball to be thrown into the other sport. We already have a sport that there used to be a top four that's kind of been thrown out. I don't want to go back to it. I don't want to go to a top two. That'll be miserable because baseball is my absolute favorite. And, you know, Hopefully you're right. Hopefully we can all you know, be cheering and cheersing, if you know what I mean, uh, that something gets done here and it's actually locked in and not all of our hopes are up and then swung back down. Well, so we're in this difficult place because as these proposals are brought to our attention, you know, we get different variations on what rosters are going to look like and what schedules are going to look like. And, you know, ordinarily, if we were in the back half of June, we'd be talking about probably the last wave of prospect call-ups, the teams that were being ultra cheap, maybe considering Super 2, they would have just brought up their prospects in the last couple of weeks. And now, since we're in extended draft season, uh, month four almost that we're on to now, we're looking at all these young players and kind of wondering, how do they fit on expanded rosters, on taxi squads, and uh, I think the most common thing I've seen is something in the neighborhood of a 30-man MLB roster that eventually you know, shrinks down a little bit as the season progresses, and then a large taxi squad of 20 or so players, uh, perhaps even more. And I think for prospects who have already played in some games at AA, I, I think we're kind of left to do this song and dance to figure out how aggressive each individual team is going to be in, in situations, of course, uh, vary and I think some of those guys are going to get bumped onto that 30-man roster whereas a lot of prospects who maybe spent uh, last season at a ball or possibly on the complex you know they're kind of fringy to even make the taxi squad but teams need to find a way to develop young talent and let's kind of go through some of the more interesting players who have uncertain roles and I want to start with Joe Adele uh, there are a lot of moving parts for the Angels. He, Justin Upton is healthy. Uh, Shohei Otani having extra time to rest. That's huge for him as well. Uh, obviously, Mike Trout's got center field locked down. Really, Joe Adele just has to be a more enticing option for this team than Brian Goodwin to play a lot. Uh, they do have a few other guys like David Fletcher who can move around. But, Welsh, where do you see 
Joe Adele fitting in on this team in a shortened season? Do you see him getting a, a more immediate opportunity, or do you think he's in the, the camp of players who's going to have to wait before he starts to see big league playing time? Yeah, I think for obvious reasons, he's kind of near the top of this list because I would really, I mean, I guess we'd love just a deal so we know what's going on in any aspect. But, you know, the the taxi squad situation is something I'd love to know more about uh, what type of parameters are going to put on it because out here in the Arizona Fall League, they'll they have a taxi squad each team has had a taxi squad for years and years and um you know there there's some specific parameters around you know how many games that they can play in a given fall league season that keeps them on our on under the qualified taxi impl uh, implication that i'd love to know what baseball's regular season taxi squad is going to follow because i think there are some names that we can look at uh further down lists that if baseball, you know, wouldn't start or, um, you know, start revving up service time, that some guys could be some, you know, there, there could be some surprise players that we never would have expected this season. Joe Adele's not that player. Joe Adele is at the tippy top for a multitude of reasons because he's one of the most talented players in baseball. And he's also, like, Joe Adele to me is one of those guys I think, like long, long, long term down the road, he's a type of guy I think could be like a leader of like player union, a leader of players type of guy. He's a he's a 21 year old kid who's started foundations, been rocking uh, video, a whole video series as a minor leaguer with I believe it's undefeated. And uh, I got to spend some time with Joe Adele in the last Arizona Fall League and had a really good talk with him. And this guy is just so locked into who he is as a player, and it shows. Last year. He missed, uh, he missed a decent amount of time, and this injury set him back. And that I think that's what kind of cooled him off for a lot of people in the, the prospect realm. A lot of people started to be like, well, you know, we're going to jump this guy, and now Gavin Lux is jumping above. But even in that injury, Adele ended up going through three spots in the minor leagues, which was a big deal. And you want it one further, something I had uh, interviewed him about was five levels he did in 2019. So this is a guy that he was getting kind of a fast track from 2017, absolutely bombed out in a good way in 2018, like balled out is a better way to say it, uh, had 20 homers across three levels in 2018, suffers an injury in spring training when it looked like he might have a chance in 2019. He then goes and plays roughly 70 I think it's um I think it's actually 76 exactly is what he played in 2019 across high A to triple A comes to the fall league and then goes and plays for team USA five spots he is a great sense of uh, barrel control he knows who he is as a hitter I think stolen bases are going to go away so I'm just kind of like leading up and telling the story of who Joe, uh, Joe Adele is and he's a middle of the order really smart analytical hitter athlete beyond belief i mean he posts videos of this guy's jumping six feet you know doing all those crazy things that i mean i don't even know if i could get six inches at this point i'm six foot four and i can't even dunk and joe adele <laughs> is um he, he's one of the smarter hitters that i've come across he doesn't press himself he doesn't take himself um too seriously while also not i don't think taking any time off so Leading back into that was a really long explanation of just Joe Adele, who, who I think he is, because I think he's a 30 plus home run hitter. Uh, and I think the stolen bases are going to come back. I don't see how the Angels hold him back in this respect. I don't see it. I can't see why Brian Goodwin would be the thing that takes him back. And I think this was the prime time that Adele 
would come up in the season. The only thing that would have been a negative or the thing that would have followed him this season is he hasn't played a ton of games in a given year. He hasn't crossed the 100-game marker in his three professional seasons. So how much could the rigors of the minor leagues and the regular season when he's already had some injury stuff? He had injury stuff coming in when he was drafted in 17. How much was that going to follow him? So they might want to baby him a tiny bit. Now, where you've got maybe 50 or 60 games, this is his time. He, you actually don't want to stunt the development of him sitting and not doing anything. This is an absolutely prime time that I think Joe Adele, given all things, uh, the circumstances all given, I think he could start with the Angels from day one in a new st- uh, shortened season. Yeah, it definitely feels like a prime riser if we were just talking about redraft leagues from March compared to this moment where you would have been... Yeah, do I stash him for a couple of months? Can I afford that? Now you maybe don't have to worry about it. He feels like the guy who really fits that maybe more than anyone. Although I do think this next guy could also be included in that category. It's Dylan Carlson. Uh, We know that the Cardinals are going to have a very crowded outfield. It was true in March. It is true in June. Uh, Dexter Fowler, Harrison Bader, Tommy Edmond, who's got some flexibility, another youngster in Tyler O'Neill. We know the power with him, and maybe the Cardinals want to get him plenty of playing time. So there are a lot of pieces Uh, for Mike Schilt to fit together there in St. Louis. Uh, But with Carlson, with the ceiling that he has, it feels like this is another guy who, along the same path as Adele, now that we're already into mid-June, Cardinals feel like no matter what the season length is, they should be able to compete, that we should see a bit of him this year. How much do you think that ends up being? Yeah, and I think he's sneaky too because I think a lot of people are going to go and look at the Cardinals roster and they talk themselves out of it. But anybody that's locked in knows, I mean, if you want to talk about momentum, you know, momentum, I, I think momentum really on a given year plays a huge role for a lot of these minor leaguers. Carlson had all of it because he was having an incredible spring. If you wanted to lock in all the minor leaguers together, um, you know, if you lock everybody in together, Fran Mil Reyes was probably having maybe the best spring training of anybody. But Dylan Carlson was right there. He was absolutely mashing the ball. And this is coming off of a uh, 2020 season he had in the minor leagues, you know, double A and triple A. I don't think the Cardinals outfit. I'm not a big Tyler O'Neill guy. And I've, I remember seeing O'Neill when he was a Mariner in the Arizona Fall League in 2016. And uh, he's an all hustle type of player, but I've never really liked the contact that he makes. He's huge power. His dad's a weightlifter. And I think a lot of people still, um, you know, beat the drum for Tyler O'Neill, which is okay. But again, in a shortened season where the Cardinals have everything on the line, this is a team that can go out and can compete immediately. I don't see how especially specifically Tyler O'Neill holds back. We know the issues with Dexter Fowler. I actually think Harrison Bader is a lot better than people give him credit for. So I don't think that Carlson is given the gig where I would think Joe Adele would be. I think he would be put in some version of a platoon, you know, in that 30 roster. I think he would be on the major league roster. And I think, you know, maybe early on they're giving the opportunity to Tyler O'Neill, maybe an occasional uh, Lane Thomas. But I think... I think you can get, let's say there's 60 games just for argument's sake here. I think you can get 40 solid games out of Dylan Carlson this year, which, you know, if we expanded that to, you know, an entire season look, two-thirds of a season of Dylan Carlson, we'd probably be taking the guy inside the top 150 if we knew we were going to get that. So I like the guy. There's some concerns about overall exit velocity and how much how big his numbers are going to be. Um But I think it's a beautiful swing, a lot of momentum. 2020 is feasible, and I think he's a better better option than any of the outfielders that they actually currently have. Just, you know, money's not going to get Dexter Fowler off the roster, unfortunately, at this point. No, I think Fowler is surprisingly safe playing time-wise for the short term, at least. 
Uh, let's talk about Carter Keyboom. I think this is an interesting situation in Washington. They brought in a lot of old but kind of steady infield options for depth. So if Keyboom falls on his face, you could kind of see him just being an extra guy in this shortened season potentially. There seems to be a pretty good ceiling, but how do you look at Keyboom versus Asdrubal Cabrera versus Howie Kendrick, who played a little bit of third base last year, and even against Starlin Castro, who might move around more than we're used to? Yeah, and you know, Keyboom does fall on his face. He's really weird. Um, he, he's a he's one of these guys. There's a couple of these since I've been you know going through my minor leagues and ranking and whatnot. That he's one of those players that he he can really find a level and fault. But he builds off of Rafael Devers has done this and Keyboom will he, he would have this minor league track record where he would dominate a level, move up, struggle, then next season or next run he would dominate and he would kind of keep going through this process. And you saw that happen time and time again. Did it in seventeen, did it in eighteen, and then in two thousand and nineteen he was just killing triple A, hitting three oh three, and then he came up to the majors and he really struggled. So I believe in Carter Keyboom's bat. I think it is an absolutely beautiful approach, beautiful swing, not a lot of business in it, and he's just going to get it done. I think he's like an easy long-term 20 to tw- like a 25 home run hitter when all things start to click, and I think he's going to be higher in average than people give him credit for, but you're right. There's a lot of uh, veterans that are there. I think he's really vying for that as Drupal Cabrera spot. You know, you could argue maybe Sterling Castro, but I think they really like him. And I think similar to Dylan Carlson, now that you have an expanded roster and then you're going to have some type of a taxi squad that follow around, I think Keyboom is going to just purely be a rotational player. You know, they're not going to want to rotate Trey Turner out, but Keyboom gives you the ability to play third, second, and short. He played second in the fall league. He played third. Uh, he worked at third, and then he played shortstop as a minor leaguer. So he gives you the versatility across the board where a guy like Howie Kendrick probably is going to be locked more to first base. So he can be the ultimate like super utility player. So I don't think his fantasy – like he's a great late-round buy because I think – as far as the infield goes, he might be uh, – take away Trey Turner. He might be one of the best fantasy options on that infield. I just don't know if the volume is going to be there. So I'll take him late, but he's not in the same territory for me this season uh, of like Carlson and Adele as far as the upside goes. Now, as we've been talking about knowing 2020 is going to be a much different year than any of us have experienced in really life, but certainly in baseball as well. One thing we've talked about are the teams that can expect to compete no matter what the season, 162, 52, 62, whatever the season length is going to be, teams that we know are going to be competitors and how they could affect the way that they approach uh, the season seen through a fantasy lens. One of those teams is the Atlanta Braves, and they've got a couple of interesting guys for this discussion, Kristen Pasht and Drew Waters. We've got Ronald Acuna, Marcelo Zuna, Ender Inciarte, Nick Marcakis, Austin Riley. Those guys are blocking these two <laughs> initially. Uh, for redraft, probably not really looking at these guys outside of NL only, maybe deeper mixed leagues and hoping that something happens with them. From a fantasy perspective, which of these two do you prefer? Well, okay, so that's a, uh, that is a tough one because Pache is the – the very popular guy, but he, I think he's more the real world guy. If I'm looking at dynasty and I'm looking at long-term and I'm not just looking at 2020, I like drew waters. I think drew waters is a much more exciting offensive bet. Maybe the bat's going to be a little bit in question, incredibly explosive bat speed. Uh, he is uh, like Dylan Carlson. He's a hundred percent. One of those like 2020 type of guys. I think you could put him at a number two slot in your lineup and he's going to accumulate stats. Christian Pache is, 
He's a bigger bodied guy who has really never lived up from a statistical standpoint in the minor leagues to his tools. You know, this was a guy that stole a whole bunch of bases at one point, 32 bases in 2017 at the A level. And then he has not stolen 32 combined bases, I don't believe, in his entire minor league career if you take away that 2017. So he just stopped stealing bases. He didn't hit a homer through his first two years in the minor leagues, and then he started to put a few on. He had nine in 2018, 12 in 2019. I think Pache is a better real-world player than I think Drew Waters has the whole dynasty perspective. What is interesting for both of these guys is the potential of a universal DH because Pache is uh, a defensive like dynamo. Like That's a guy that you go and put in center or right or wherever you want to put him, and he is going to be a gold glove potential defensive guy. But I just don't think statistically he's going to shine. So it opens up opportunity if Austin Riley were to you know end up taking the third base job. Well, you can put one of these other guys, if you wanted a Marcelo Zuna, at DH, and you can put Pache. So Pache would be the guy, I think, that this year, if anyone would have potential, it's him. But I'll take Drew Waters long-term just on his upside. Yeah, I think for redraft purposes, there's just not a ton to get excited about there unless the Braves have a, a rash of injuries in the outfield. They both seem like taxi squad guys to me where yeah. something goes and, wrong. And Ozuna has play. that. And Ozuna has that DVR. I mean, Ozuna was coming off of injuries. Like, the, he is uh, perennially uh, injured. I don't know if they would go to Duvall or, or something different, but if Ozuna were to get banked up, Pache would be the one that they would go to, I think, immediately with, with this whole taxi squad situation because they'd probably bring him up. And then he could actually – he'd be one of those guys, I think, viably – with the taxi squad might give them the ability to try him out. That's why he could have a couple games under his belt this year. And if you lose Ozuna for any capacity, that tryout could then be to the active roster. I want to talk about Ryan Mountcastle just for a minute because I think he gets sort of left out of the conversation for potential 2020 impact rookies. His ADP since May 1st in the handful of NFBC drafts that have happened is right around pick 400. It's at 397. There's really nothing left for him to prove at AAA. I think last season he had a 117 WRC+, plus, hit 25 homers at the level. Maybe he gets dinged a little because he doesn't walk a lot, and you know we want middle-of-the-order guys to have great plate discipline. But as you look at his path to playing time and the home park he's going to play in, do you look at Mountcastle as a little bit of a, a 2020 redraft sleeper? Yeah, I think so. But he is a classic uh, Orioles prospect. It feels, it's like old school, like Manny Machado. You're like, oh, look at that. Uh, a higher than 20K percentage and a lower than 5% walk rate. All right, there we go. There's an Orioles prospect for you. But um, yeah, he, he's a he's an offensive option for sure. The 25 homers jumped up a little bit from, I saw him when he was still a shortstop uh, in the AFL and he actually really surprised. He was kind of one of these guys that some people would talk about, but I want to say this was in 16 or 17. I don't remember when it was now, but he was one of those prospects that there was a little bit of excitement, but you know, people would see there was bat speed, but he'd get really long in the swing and he was just having issues you know, making contact overall, even though, you know, in 2017 at high A, he hit 314, but then he followed that up in double A with 222. So this is a guy that he still gets beat. It looks like he's getting beat less, but the walk ratios still concern me. But the Orioles, I mean, with all due respect, are garbage. Like you look across <laughs> this roster, 
what what is the thing that you can justifiably be like, oh, okay, this is a major league roster. Like if the Orioles are at the table right now in the negotiations being like, listen, we need we want to be heard here. I would be like, Orioles, you sit down. You don't get to be heard because you're not even rostering a major league roster. You're my, you could bring out a minor league. You could have an all-star minor league team right now that I think could viably compete against your major league roster. Adley Rutschman, uh, Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes. I guess they have Austin Hayes on the uh, the actually active roster. So I think with who they're rostering right now, it's the biggest no-brainer of no-brainer that Ryan Mountcastle makes sense. And he's also, you know, he's been doing this a while. He's been in their system since 2015, and he's put up 127 games in AAA last year. So all of the things tell you it's time. But it's the Orioles, so I don't know. I, I would say the ballpark is a huge plus. Uh, the team analytically is trying to do some positive things, which I think you see in Ryan Mountcastle. Ryan Mountcastle represents the type of fantasy player with the with the pop that you would like. So all of those things are in the positive territory, and I think his ADP is actually pretty stupid, the discount he's coming for. But I think you have to be prepared, and the reason the discount is there is because the Orioles – we just don't know. Is this a money-saving tactic? Is this another tank situation? Are they tanking for uh, Kamar Rocker? You know, that type of stuff. Like, what what is it that they're doing here? But if you want to just exclude that, which we don't have control over, yeah, I'll go with Ryan Mountcastle for sure because you could put him and slot him in at number four in the lineup right now, and he could be a cheap source of homers. Um, like uh, Renato Nunez, you know, like last year, just all of a sudden, this is a free source of homers, RBIs, and runs. Three-year categories locked in. Let's take this to the mound. Uh, going back about half an hour ago, we were talking about the draft season that would never end before we got started recording, and I feel like if one conversation typifies that for me it's these young tigers starting pitchers i feel like every three weeks or so dvr on one show or another dvr and i are checking in on these guys you get casey mize matt manning Tariq skubel and at this point for the tigers it really is a question of long-term development do they want to make sure that they get competitive innings or prepare them for 2021 or they're trying to save service time. Is that going to be the priority that could then ultimately steer them to the taxi squad? I know we're asking you to get in the mind of the Tigers' brain trust at this point, but ultimately, where do we see these guys going for the 2020 season? Yeah, so the pitchers, that it's a tough one for me because, like, for myself, you know, I'm out here at developmental level. I'll get to see the fall league levels, and then I'm also here during spring training where and, and by the way the tigers are not out here in arizona so i'm saying this is a universal thing but i'm out here in the facilities and um what i get is a different perspective of how the teams are working with their entire organization because at that moment you know for two months there is let's take the padres for an instance because i practically live there is you have the entire organization in one place in one facility you've got the major leaguers and then they even separate the triple a double a low a uh, or high A, low A, and then they've got a, a complete other roster of all the international guys who are working out. So what I'm getting at here is you see the level of focus the teams are putting in on these pitchers, and the all the guys you're talking about are similar to the Padres situation with McKenzie Core. And when you get to this level of double A AA and triple A, if there are 
if there are major deficiencies like what uh, White Sox Michael Kopech had for a while, Kopech was really trying to work on secondaries forever, and he a little bit of injury stuff and command on the fastball. Then you baby these guys, you baby these guys, you just pound it, you go, 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 go. And then when it's finally the necessity, you bring them up and you get to put all that stuff in motion. On the other end, you have these pitchers like McKenzie Gore or all three of these pitchers, Tarek Skubal, Matt Manning, and Casey Mize, where there isn't a whole lot more to prove. And if you take away this developmental time, what's the point? And I would really worry if, if I've been asked a million times, like, hey, what are you worried about in development for um, just since, you know, my minor league coverage? What are you worried about in development during this quarantine? You know, is there a level you worried about triple A, double A? I've kind of honed in maybe a little bit on the low A to high A guys, but pitching especially double-A-plus pitching, is very concerning. Unless there is a red flag, like someone like Forrest Whitley, I'm concerned with teams idly sitting by when this is an incredibly important developmental time. And I think all three of those Tigers pitchers would be served would be an uh they, it would be a negative a huge negative served to them if they were to just sit by and throw at a complex level for this year simply because of service time so i think all three of them have to get some version of a shot in this shortened season because they were close enough you know i i do think casey mize and Tarek scoople that's the top of the list for me of the players that were going to get this um, this opportunity this year. I'd actually say Matt Manning was the furthest. They're still trying to work on uh, simplifying and locking in the delivery so he can continuously be consistent. Casey Mize, you want to get up with a devastating splitter he has. You want to get that in the major leagues, and you want to start taking advantage of it just in case you know there are some injury things down the line. And Tarek Skubal, surprisingly, might be the most ready of all of them, hitting 100 while we've been in the quarantine, big power lefty. And you could put him long, long relief if you wanted, or you can get him in the rotation. I thought those two were already locks to play into this year, but I think the Tigers are going to get all three of them in, but I just don't think it's going to be from a 2020 perspective, anything that you guys go and draft, unless it's a crazy, huge best ball type of thing. Um, otherwise I'm just looking to stream, but I think the order this might surprise people. I think the order might be Scooble, Mize, Manning as far as appearances this, this year, and it's just going to have to be in a stream perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's the the right way to go about it, just given the uncertainty. I mean, you want to be pretty selective with those late-round picks, those last few dollars in an auction. Try to you know, shoot your shot with some players that might be on the roster right away, and I think with the Tigers, if they do give Scooble, if they do give Mize some opportunities this year, it, probably doesn't happen right away it's hard to wait on those players in leagues with limited bench spots um, I'm excited about all three though for the future the one thing i'd throw in um that the, here's the wild card to all of it anybody could win this season if you have 60 games anybody is in contention so i know except baltimore except baltimore they're not in contention <laughs> they're not baltimore everybody else is in contention but i'm legitimately telling you i like i don't think detroit's team is a team that is going to be competitive. But hey, man, what if they start rattling off some stupid wins early on and then you got a situation where halfway through this shortened season, they're heavily in contention with the amount of playoffs that are out there. Well, guess what? Teams are, teams are motivated by money and there is playoff money to be had that teams are teams might be more aggressive than we've ever seen before because you know apparently apparently there's a big money issue with the billionaires right now that they're going to there would probably be a bigger narrative than ever that 
making the playoffs might supersede the uh, contractual minor league issues that are always following us and teams are always manipulating. So if you take that into consideration, holy cow, you might go from a situation where I think Scooble, Mize, and them get one or, you know, I don't know. They might even stack the two, to be honest with you. They might have one or two appearances in a shortened season. You could get them in the rotation because they, all three of them are an instant upgrade. They are two, three, and four in the rotation for the Tigers, and the Tigers could do something weird. So I'd also watch that as well. If the Tigers are winning some early on games and you're in a league where they're floating around, I'd pick up Scooble and uh, and Mize for sure. Well, and if you take those three young starters and put them in the rotation, the back-end starters who struggle, like Jordan Zimmerman and Daniel Norris in particular, I mean, you put them in short relief, that gives them a boost in the bullpen, their stuff plays up, I mean... Stranger things have happened, and yeah, I don't think the Tigers in, in 162 had a prayer of sniffing a wild card, but in a 60-game season, they have just enough there if they push all the chips in to actually have a shot at it, and that maybe that is enough to actually yeah. get them to flip that switch. Um, AJ Puck is another guy I want to talk about. We're not going to talk about Lizardo much in this episode. You had the floor, so I guess if you want to talk about Lizardo, you're free to do it, but... Uh, AJ Puck should be in this rotation when the season begins. It's a scary injury history. They've got a bunch of guys that are just kind of mediocre fillers in the back. Maybe Chris Bassett's a little better than people give him credit for, but I don't think it's a a lack of paths that would keep AJ Puck from the opportunity. I think it's really only injury at this point. Is he viable in 12-team redraft mixed leagues as a guy that goes kind of in the probably in the 225 to 250 range of, of most drafts. Okay, so there's a two-parter here. I'm, and I'm going to throw something back to you guys I want to get your take on. And Puck is a great example. I think the Tigers guys would have been a great example. So first off, yes, Puck is viable to draft because he was one of the handful of guys, him and Dustin May, you could lump in. They were these guys that teams were like, well, we, you know, we really want to get these guys innings, but we might not have early on a spot, so they might be candidates to be sent down. Puck, maybe less than Dustin May, but that's where like Dustin May was going to go. Now, that seems ridiculously stupid, and that wouldn't happen, so Puck is back in it, and he has the peripherals of a top-flight type of fantasy pitcher. I think he's more volatile, way more volatile than Lizardo. Um, I think some games long-term when he really starts building innings. I mean, this is also a guy I just want to throw out. He's never pitched over, uh, I want to say, like 100. And I think he's had one season of like around 120 innings. That was in 2017. Didn't pitch in 18. And 19, he had you know, just a handful of uh, innings overall. So, he doesn't have a long, long-term track record, at least in the minor leagues, that I think some stuff can get away from him. So I'm not crazy, crazy high on investing. Uh, there's probably a guy we're going to talk about here shortly I'm much more likely to draft than A.J. Puck. But A.J. Puck brings up something that I'm very curious about, and I'd love to get your guys' take on as well. And, and all these minor league pitchers and their viability is, is do you think in this shortened season that sites, it doesn't matter, you know, whoever you play with, you know, Yahoo, ESPN, Fantrax, whatever it is, do you think with this season, we have to consider, even if it's just for one year, changing the qualifications of a win? Or is it us changing stats? Because, you know, we're talking about how fun Tarek Skubo could be and Casey Mize and AJ Puck. We don't know if teams are going to go to six-man or even seven-man rotations with these rosters. 
But what seems more likely this season is what if you start having pitchers being stacked because, you know, a taxi squad of, of 20 minor leaguers, let's say, 10 could be pitchers. If those guys only get, let's say, a total of five appearances apiece uh, for an entire season to be taxi squad eligible, you could use one or two a week and you could just burn through. And what I'm getting at is I think we could have a lot more stacking the opener type of situation where someone goes four and then another reliever goes three and then you get it to the bullpen. And if if sites change the qualifications for a win, then I think a guy like AJ Puck becomes even more enticing and some of these minor leaguers and the Rays in general, I suppose. But do you think there's something warranted DVR to like us making this major adjustment for this season? Because I think the likelihood of pitchers only going three or four innings is like three times more than in any other given season. Yeah, I think having larger rosters just opens the door for some very creative usage. I think we've seen the Rays kind of lead the way with this. We've seen Oakland kind of dabble in it with the use of the opener a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of other teams that have depth are going to try and follow suit in some capacity. I don't think league providers are going to make a change for how they account for wins. They may offer a new category. They may have a modified wins category that they create. And even that, I think, is going to be limited to the more flexible sites. I mean, fan tracks would probably be the first site I would think of that would actually program something new that accounts for this. I think it's on commissioners to say, hey, we got to make some adjustments. And one thing people have to change, I hope the sites can do this for everybody, the minimum innings pitched leagues that has to be completely yeah. changed. Otherwise, everyone's going to fall short of that for sure. Other, <laughs> that's going to cause chaos at the end of the season with the standings. So hopefully that gets fixed. But pushing that aside, the one change I've been making in a lot of leagues where I've had this control, I've been pushing for innings pitched as a category instead of wins because then you're still valuing guys that come in for multiple innings of relief without rewarding holds. You're giving guys that come in for three or four innings as followers a little bit of a bump. Um, and you're not necessarily rooting for very odd usage cases to get guys in position to get wins. I mean, like the Ryan Yarbrough so, usage in 2018, I think, was pretty much perfect for gaming the system. Like, Not only did it use him optimally for the Rays, but it actually put him in a greater position to get wins for us as fantasy players than he would have been in had he just been starting those games and leaving before the fifth inning. Yeah, see, see, I think that's where it's it's at. I mean, Michael, do you feel the same way? Because I'm I'm just torn on this. Like we're talking about all these pitching uh, guys, and, and they can be very exciting. They can help with your ratios if you're playing K per nine. They can help with your strikeouts. I just don't know. You know, a, a weird thing that happened in the minor leagues with the A's when Lazardo and Puck were both injured. They came back at the same time, and the A's actually stacked these two on top of each other. There was their first appearance back in the. I'm forgetting, you know, where it was at or whatever, but it was last year, and it, the opener was Lazardo who went four and then puck went three or four right after in the minor leagues and they did this a couple times in the minors so you know what a disaster this would be for fantasy owners that are taking lazardo in the top 100 and then the a's you know an a do you want to talk about a team that would be potentially willing to manipulate their pitchers a bit and multiple teams what if they started doing that what if lazardo and puck became a super pitcher and then all of a sudden both have hurt yourselves so i think if leagues, and Michael, I don't know if you feel the same way, if, if leagues are proactive about it or sites are proactive about it, I think there should be an adjustment that makes these guys even more viable. Otherwise, I do have a feeling that rookie pitchers could disappoint a decent amount this season. Yeah, you know, I've been toying around with ways in just recent years, not even just for the, the bizarreness of 2020, to make to, ref, to have fantasy value reflect the real-life pitcher usage and try to make guys more valuable, try to make their 
fantasy value reflect how valuable they are to their real life teams. Uh, so I, I think any sort of creativity is a good thing to try to do for 2020 and maybe see if it holds for 2021. It's another thing that we should be thinking about. I hope MLB's thinking about, and I think we should be thinking about in the fantasy world is to use this season as a laboratory and try out some new things. We know it's going to be a weird year. No matter what, you can't hope to have your normal fantasy year in this 2020 season. So try some new things out and see what sticks and see if you like some things for 2021, 2022, and things you know, hopefully get back to normal with the CBA notwithstanding. I think DVR's idea of using innings pitched as a category is an interesting one uh, because it does begin to do a better job of reflecting the real-life value that a lot of these pitchers ultimately are going to end up bringing to the table this season. And really, any way that you get creative, I don't think is a bad idea in this season. Yeah, and I've and we we did this whole thing on uh, in this league with with uh, Bogman, who's my co-host. We did this whole thing of me killing him for this one league we used to play in. It had like it was like nine by nine categories, and I every year I would complain about it. And innings pitch was one of those, and I was like, this is so stupid. I'm like, get rid of inherited <laughs> runs and get rid of innings pitched. This is dumb, but. That might be one of the most viable ways to get around it this year, and that's something we've been doing a ton is just trying to get creative, ways to play your regular season in a playoff, but I think people need to consider the categories as well. I've seen people wanting to go to the percentage stuff, you know, getting rid of um, <coughs> excuse me, getting rid of counting stats and just going for, you know, OBP and slugging and stuff like that. You got to get creative, and as you get creative, a lot of these pitchers are going to become way, way more viable because there will be opportunity. Puck's opportunity is going to be at the top of the list. I don't know if, I think early on they'll go to Bassett, and I think Puck could be one of those guys that is in this situation. You know, maybe Lozardo goes four and Puck comes in, you know, for two or three, or Bassett goes four. I think that's where he starts, but he could move into the rotation pretty early on, but he'll be there the whole time, unlike probably like the Tigers guys we were talking about. You know, another guy who could fit into this discussion is Brendan McKay, right? I mean, a guy who could be a yeah. beast in a multi-inning bulk relief follower role, whatever it ends up being, something along those lines. Obviously, we know the big three in this rotation, Blake Snell, Tyler Glasnow, Charlie Morton. Uh, it does seem that McKay could end up having an increased likelihood of being in a rotation at some point, even in this you know short season with the injury histories of uh, especially uh, Snell Morton, Glasnow, I mean, those three guys all have some sort of injury history. I think Morton might be a little bit less of a risk than the other two, uh, but that's a different discussion uh, for a different day. Could McKay be an ace in the making, and what do we think his 2020 role is going to end up being? Yeah, I got a tough time calling him. Uh, McKay's one of those guys that I'm not the biggest in the world on. Um, ironically, I actually liked him as a hitter coming out of Louisville a little bit more than I liked him as a pitcher because he just had a big, almost like a Goldie type of a, an approach and he could, you know, he could hit some bombs. And I, and I, I always in fantasy sly, uh, especially from my leaguers to the hitters. That's where I want to go. I'm, I think, you know, you can find gyms in pitching, especially when injuries occur more often than not. So I, I tend to shy away a little bit, but he has clearly proven that pitching is where he needs to sit. And frankly, I wouldn't mind if the Rays just let him commit to that. You know, long term, we had so many discussions like a year or two ago about, you know, what does the future of baseball look like with uh, multi-positional players? And Otani is the one that is, you know, breaking this trend of, I think, you know, a guy that can do both but doesn't do both great. Otani does both amazing, and that's why he's so exciting. I just don't know if McKay's going to ever get there. But as a pitcher— I think he's going to be a higher end fantasy guy. I just I'm not going to ever put him as 
an ace unless things start to click a little bit more. He's still giving up uh, home runs at a relatively high clip, which I, I don't like, 1.47 per nine. He's under three walks per nine. His strikeouts have been there, uh, but he's just still getting hit. You know, his ERA was inflated over five, and his XFIP was only at 438. So this wasn't like a guy that was getting incredibly unlucky, and he had a you know mid-three ERA. I think in a couple years, McKay is going to be a guy that could be like a top 25 pitcher in fantasy. But uh, I wouldn't hold my breath anytime soon. But this year does feed to him. So back to the original point, this year feeds to him like, you know, give him. But again, you come back to the how many innings are guys going to go? The Rays manipulate this all the time. Do they even want McKay to go six or seven innings? No, because he falls apart. He always fell apart last year. Once he got to the back end of the second part of the order or the third. So he is a prime example of a guy start a game, start him for three innings and get him out, pair him with Trevor Richards. If you want pair him out and then go, you know, McKay Richards, Alvarado, and then go Nick Anderson and end a game. And it'll probably be lights out. So from an inning pitched and an accumulation of strikeouts and whatnot, I really like him. I think he could strike out six and in three innings and, and not get even hit up and kid out of the game. But if he doesn't qualify, a win, it, it kind of screws you a little bit. So I like McKay for this year in those respects, but from a fantasy starting pitcher trying to get wins, I, I, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, there's a few ways they could mix and match in the back of that rotation. They could pair Trevor Richards with Ryan Yarbrough, and you've got a righty-lefty combo. Uh, Yarbrough only throws 88. Richards will throw a little harder, I think, in a multi-inning relief rule. He's got that nasty changeup, and then you could put McKay with Yanni Chirinos, and those two guys combined might get you yeah. seven or eight innings very easily. I think Yanni Chirinos might be a little bit overlooked still, even though he's had a lot of success now uh, getting opportunities in that big league rotation. Let's talk about Spencer Howard for a minute, because in many ways yeah. it feels like he's the safest of the rookie starters in terms of expected role. Like The Phillies have kind of tipped their hand that they really want to make him a part of their rotation. Do you think he's ready, and do you think he can hit the ground running and actually come through as maybe a, a viable like SP4, SP5 type in our redraft leagues? Yeah, I do. I was very, very much into Spencer Howard before uh, you know the pandemic shut everything down. I was like top. I want to say I had Spencer Howard around top two hundred, like top two twenty five in my ranks um, that I have it in this league dot com, and I, I was heavy on him because he was in this last year's fall league. Interestingly enough. He kind of had the same uh, work through in 2019 as Joe Adele did, where he went three levels, uh, technically four if you count the two different uh, spaces of rookie, but it was still levels. So he went rookie ball for a, a little stint. Uh, he went to advanced A, and then he went to double A. Then he went to the fall league, where he was relatively phenomenal. And then he went and pitched uh, in those practice sessions or those games with Team USA. So he had a five-level run. And the Phillies were they were really locked into him, too. I interviewed Alec Baum, and I, I never got to Spencer Howard there. But uh, I was talking with Alec about Spencer. And the Phillies had set—they ended up adjusting a little bit, but they had set only five starts they wanted him to pitch in the AFL. And he ended up, I think, pitching a six before he was taken off the roster to get ready for Team USA. And I caught one of those games, and it's some of the best stuff I've seen in a while. I actually did this little thing where I narrated, I recorded, um, I, it was on my Prospect One podcast, I recorded an entire inning, and I narrated every single pitch, and I was giving velocities and what he was doing, and it was insane. It was three-plus pitches, commanding it across the board, just dominating hitters. And these aren't like, you know, 
rookie level hitters that are there. This this is the guys like Joe Adele. This is uh, you know Royce Lewis who uh, ended up winning MVP of the league. There was a cream of the crop, and Spencer Howard showed one of the more mature abilities I've seen, especially in the fall league in quite some time. And he was pumping the fastball mid nineties. He's uh, he's just got a three pitch arsenal with plus command that I think is ready for the major leagues. He is mentally a guy that is ready for the major leagues. And as you had said, the Phillies were talking about him already in contention for the fifth spot before everything went down. So he's a no brainer to me. So where we're talking about some decent pitchers that you can speculate on late, like Scooble and Mize, but then when you talk about the the real guys that are in between, it's Mackenzie Gore, it's AJ Puck, it's Spencer Howard. They're all in the same range. I'm going to probably take Spencer Howard every single time over those guys because I think he's going to get a run this year. And he's one of those guys that Philly's going to press. You know, He doesn't have a, a ton of innings under his belt where he can't go 60 in a full season. Um, and then I don't know, you know, into the playoffs, like he could pump a hundred easy this year without issue, even after what happened last year. So yeah, I'm, I'm all Spencer Howard right now. All right. Well, which of those groups does uh, Michael Kopech fit in? He talked earlier about him working on secondaries in the past. Obviously we saw him back in spring training before everything shut down. We know the fastball's there. We know the velocity's always going to be there for Michael Kopech, but he's going to need those secondaries to show up as well if he's going to make an impact, not just this year, uh, but beyond for the White Sox. We know this rotation, what it looks like at the top, what it looks like at the back, a little bit more of a work in progress. Where do we see Kopech this season? Yeah, I mean, he was a different pitcher. That, That was what I was alluding to, too, when I was telling you. I saw him, it was in, like, 17 in Instructs, I think it was, um, well, yeah, it was instructs, and he he just didn't look good. And I was really worried because I love Kopech. I I saw him back when he was still with the Red Sox, and he just was like just off. Command was off. He'd pump a fastball, and then he would try to throw a change up, and it was just everything looked off. And so I was really kind of getting down on him. And then when he got to the majors in eighteen, I was like, "Who is this pitcher?" It all of a sudden clicked, and it was a perfect example of how you do have to look at the minor leagues as a learning process. you got to remember that these guys are working through stuff. It's not, you know, just um, one in and one out. It, it's a different, a completely different process. He looked like a new pitcher with his secondary. So you, I think you have to get back on board because his fastball is absolutely electric. It really, really is. I got the, one of the Fall Stars games. DVR, I think you were there. I think you were sitting with us. We got to see Brent Honeywell versus Michael Kopech, mm-hmm. which was Stupid. It was one of the dumbest opening performances I've ever seen of two pitchers just going 97 and 100 back and forth. So I believe the stuff is absolutely still at the top. He showed himself being a different pitcher. It's just the injury set him back so hard. I do think he's going to get run this year. I don't think it's going to be a full slate. Uh, I know this would have been the time where he would have started ramping up and getting some innings. He's after Spencer Howard, but he might be before McKenzie Gore because McKenzie Gore was a, as a pure speculation play that you would want to draft this year simply because, like, Gore, he has nothing else to prove in the minor leagues, and he was working with the majors in camp uh, back in March. So Kopech is a little bit safer to make sure you get production, and the White Sox could lean on him a little bit with how heavily um, in contention they should be. So I'm definitely down with Kopech, but, you know, results right after a Tommy John I usually avoid, so I wouldn't be upspending on Kopech. I would on Howard, though. Let's talk about Nate Pearson for a second, and then we should circle back to the Padres guys, because I think Pearson kind of fits into this bucket, similar to Kopech and Howard. Maybe he's a little bit more like Kopech in terms of usage. I think it was another Fall Stars game. I was sitting with you and, and Bogman, and uh, Monty Harrison could overhear us talking about the the radar gun. We yep. thought the radar gun was a little bit hot. Because I think Nate Pearson had a 104 that popped up on the board, and we're just like, come on, 104, that's just 
you know, that's just getting us all excited. Uh, so as you watch Nate Pearson and you start to think about how the Jays could use him, it seems like he's an upgrade over their back-end starters. They've got this sort of Milwaukee-Oakland-esque structure to their starting pitching right now. Uh, do you think he's capable of being just in the rotation right away like Howard, or do you think we're going to have to wait a little bit as he's kind of stuck in taxi squad purgatory for a few weeks before he gets an opportunity? Yeah, Pearson is a great one. And that story, by the way, is still one of my favorites. I think it was the last televised Fall Star game. We're all sitting there at the front, and Pearson pumped a 103, and we were like, come on. And then he pumped 104, but Alonzo, Pete Alonzo, took him out of the ballpark at a surprise stadium on a 104 pitch and that was where we were all losing our minds and then Monte Harrison who is a fantastic dude I really like him I've, I've spent some time with him and he was standing there and I remember someone saying that and Monte looked back yeah he smiled at us and he was like that's real it's real man uh, it was a really fun cool moment but Pearson Pearson there's so much to like about Pearson too he's a really really smart guy who's locked into his game after that fall uh, that Arizona Fall League he actually went out to uh, driveline and he was working more and you kind of saw the results uh, post driveline as well this is a really smart dude who continues to work on what he was just viewed as like a you know like the old school Kopech like that's ah, kind of a straight fastball he th kind of throws one pitch that's about what the, all that he does and it wasn't the case I mean his strikeouts they were down a little bit last year, and I think that was in lieu of um, locking in command uh, even more. But, you know, there are three-plus pitches, and it is powered by a massive fastball. And I'll tell you this. I think the Blue Jays are one of, you know, we all talk about, wait, what's this crazy season going to look like? I think the Blue Jays are one of those weird teams that are we're going to look back and we're going to be like, what did the Blue Jays do in 2020? Just because it's a it's a young competitive core. I know there's not a lot of you know there's not a lot of veteran leadership, but Biggio, Vlad, Bichette, Lourdes Gurriel, Teoscar Hernandez is sneaky this year. Randall Grichik and Ryu. I think I think Ryu. I'm not trying to turn the conversation. Ryu's one of those guys that his value is so massively up in a shortened season right now. It's not funny. So I take all of this competitiveness that I think the Blue Jays could actually be this season in that division where the Red Sox, Little Washy, and everything. That I think Nate Pearson is a guy that isn't even on the taxi squad. I think they could put him on that 30-man immediately. I don't know if they jump him back into rotation, but this is one of those players, why not get him the innings? You know, he didn't. He doesn't have a lot of innings until last year under his belt. Get it at the major league level, whether it could be relief or it's in a starting role or a multi-inning role. Nate Pearson, he's sneaky because I don't think he's really going. I don't remember if you said where he was going NFBC, but I don't think he's going inside the top 300. I would be picking him up because his stuff is near the top of speculation. He's That is the stuff that you want to bet on, and the team makes sense, and I think how they can be competitive makes sense, and there are roles all over the board. He checks all the boxes of why you would speculate on him. Totally agree with you that that could be a really fun team in a short season. It would have been a really fun team no matter the length of the season, but in terms of being a surprisingly competitive team, right? Like they would have had to hit their 99th percentile across the board to have been competitive over 162, I think, but over 60 totally. or 65. It could be a very competitive and certainly a fun team. So I'm going to be excited to watch them. And another team that fits that is the Padres. Got to talk about them since we brought them up a little bit. The thing that with Mackenzie Gore, unquestioned on the ceiling, right? We know what that is. We know what he could be. We know what maybe he will be in a couple of years from now. But when we're looking at 2020, you've got Chris Paddock, Denelson Lamette, Garrett Richards, Zach Davies, Joey Lucchese. There's not an immediate obvious need 
in this team's rotation. So where does Gore end up fitting for the Padres in this season? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right about that. They, they've um, they've stacked and piled a whole bunch of guys, and they've got they've even got a couple you know rookies that might be a notch ahead. You know, they they might want to get Cal Quantrill you know worked out. They might want to stretch him out a little bit. But I, I'm I'm torn with it, guys, because McKenzie Gore. You know, he was working with uh, he was working with the major leaguers um, in this last camp. He was with Garrett Richards. He was with Adrian Morion, Mikel Baez, so a couple of the younger guys as well. And he just doesn't have a lot left to prove. He's just one of these weird instances. He he is my barometer of how I gauge young pitching at this point. Because when he debuted out here in the AZL uh, in 2017, I think it was, uh, I'd never seen uh, a prep pitcher do what he was doing. You know, pumping a fastball command, absolutely knee-buckling curveball, uh, three-plus with just incredibly good command. Um, an amazing athlete, used to be a hitter as well. And he has dominated at every step. And and I think he makes it look too easy sometimes where people don't give him the benefit of the doubt that he is the best pitcher in the minor leagues right now. And people sometimes see, you know, oh, what? He he only had a 3RA in the month of April? Like, really? That's all he – like, he makes things look too easy that I just don't know what he has left to prove. So if I'm the Padres, very smart team, they take very good care of their pitchers and, and whatnot, I would just wonder – like what disservice are we going to do to McKenzie Gore if he's just at the complex level, you know, throwing BP, you know, if he's just throwing BP sessions all day long, he's, he is a very competitive person. One of the most competitive pitchers I've seen in the last couple of years, just from day one, like he is intense. He can get intense when he's pitching that w- what has he served? Um, and that's maybe not the biggest question you need to ask because the Padres need to be like, well, you know, what clock, you know, what role do we have for him and what clock do we want to start that? I think the Padres, again, you're going to have a competitive team. There is some injury risk worries in there. If the Padres decided to stack any pitchers, I think McKenzie Gore could be a part of that. And frankly, you could do a McKenzie Gore, Zach Davies stack, and you could stack those two together to be your fifth starter. And that serves McKenzie Gore for this season. It doesn't serve the wins. So again, this comes back to every rookie pitcher, maybe outside of Spencer Howard, I still have a concern of being able to get an actual win, but they're going to be able to get some of the other counting stats. So I'm still betting on McKenzie Gore, even in a shortened season, having some type of a role. But I think all of these guys you should be cautious about. And and maybe you should be more cautious about his cost comparative to what role the Padres could actually give him I just truly think he's the type of pitcher you don't mess around with you get you get there up quickly especially when they've checked the boxes and somebody tell me what box he hasn't checked at this point well and I think they've shown with Paddock and with Fernando Tatis Jr. in in recent years like they are willing to give players that opportunity and and sacrifice the extra year of time maybe to build up some some goodwill and and maybe keep those guys around in the long long haul with an extension too there's there's some benefit there aside from making your team immediately better and I would say the Padres are kind of an NL uh, version of the Jays as a team that in a 16 team playoff scenario with the young talent they have they could pop very quickly they could exceed expectations and uh, whereas over 162 there was still going to be a pretty big gap between the Padres and the Dodgers the variance of a short season can erase uh, a lot of that Uh, I gotta ask you you pulled a Jason Dominguez autograph <laughs> recently. You you were uh, you put a video up on on Twitter of this. What are you gonna do with that? Are, are you putting that thing up? Are you cashing that in? Are you holding on to it? Like, what's your what's your plan with that? <laughs> 
That's funny, DVR. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we've all been looking for something to do, right? Uh, when everything's, we've been out with baseball and uh, some people have been playing MLB The Show and, it, you know, their sim leagues are more popular. But another thing that really, really jumped is uh, card collecting. A lot of people have gotten back into it. And um, I, I've, I, I'm a collector of stuff. I have like a weird hoarding collecting thing. I get into like I have I just have these moments of, of addiction, I suppose, and good addictions, not bad ones. But I mean, they do cost. So like, you know, I like I have like autograph stuff and, you know, bourbons. I've uh, got into had a hard run of bourbons and card collecting. I just I've got stuff. And um, what was really interesting about this, not to make this a whole story, but what was interesting is because of the pandemic, Bowman, Tops Bowman, is one of the more popular products. Well, what were they going to do? You know, players, they, they couldn't get cards to players. They had all this stuff. So there was kind of this stigma that was starting to go around like, hey, this Bowman product's going to come out. And then it was only coming out in limited release. So then people started getting more excited, like, ooh, there's only this much is going to come out. So I kind of got intrigued by it. So the long story short uh, through was the Bowen product to this day is still incredibly hard to find in stores or retail products. So I happened to find some. Um, I did some fun little like breaks with our Patreon members. And then I had had a couple of these $20 boxes left over. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do a, I'll just do a little video, make some content. You know, we're content creators here. I'll make a little content, just breaking my own boxes. And I did a box versus a box uh, video. And I do the first one and it kind of sucks. And it was like this green, you know, O'Neill Cruz card. I'm like, all right, let's see what, what we pull. And then uh, as the video shows, and we've already said, I pull a green to 99 autograph Jason Dominguez, who is you know top Yankees prospect. And for, for perspective, there isn't a better card that you can pull in this product. The prices are outrageous of what they're going for because it's limited and it's his first card. Uh, but I did sell it. I had to. I, I couldn't. I, I wanted to hold on to it. I really did because I like collecting and I like having that stuff. And I think Jason Dominguez is going to be a real deal thing. But I did. I did. I actually sold it that day. I found somebody that uh, that wanted to purchase it, and he has a he has a whole new home. I took some pictures with him, but I gave him his forever home, and I did have to let go of that. It's it's the most absurd pull in a twenty dollar retail box that you could do a multi thousand dollar card. It just doesn't happen. So yeah, I I, I would have uh, sold it with no reservations whatsoever. Yeah, I, I did it really quick. I did. Like within like a couple hours, I had somebody that wanted it, and I was like, "Okie doke." All right, let's <laughs> Here do we go. It. Let's do it. Yep. Um, we usually like to end our Friday episode with a, a few toss-ups, some baseball, some non-baseball. We're already a little over an hour here, so we're just going to throw one at you. It's non-baseball. We've got a lot of good baseball talk in here already, so just one toss-up. We know you're a bourbon guy, uh, so we'll take the Pappy Van Winkle tenure versus all other bourbon. What are you taking? Uh, well, okay. What's the con? I'm sorry. What's the context like of just pure taste? Because I got to tell you, if it's if I have to verse, Pappy is impossible to find, and it tastes great. I'd actually have to take all other bourbon though. If you're giving me the full context of bourbon, if you're just saying taste, like, yeah, the Pappy I had, it was probably top three of the best bourbons I've ever had, but still under that respect, I think all things considered, if I'm looking for five tool here, guys, <laughs> I might have to say all of the bourbons because there's so many, you know, there's the Buffalo traces of the world. I think Woodford reserve is great. Uh, Four roses, one of my favorite, but then if you can, you know, get really into it, the Weller brand, um, I mean, those for bang for their buck, it's one of the best out there. Rock Hill Farms is impossible to find, but it is an incredible bourbon, and Whistlepig does a great one.
one. So Pappy is the, you know, Pappy is the Martian, if you will. But there's so many good bourbons that are in line with it. I'd actually have to take all others. So yeah. So the thing that inspired me to put this on our rundown today, knowing you're a bourbon connoisseur, I'm starting to see Pappy emerge as a fundraising tool. There are liquor stores and coffee shops near me who they have, you know, they have a bottle or they have a couple of bottles and what they're doing is they're doing a charity raffle and for you know $5 a ticket you get one ticket in the raffle and if they draw your ticket you can buy the bottle for retail and you know, retail versus you know resale is going to be a huge difference on what any bottle of pappy right I'm not a bourbon expert but it, it seems like one of those things that's immediately 5 to 10 times more valuable than what you just paid for it because demand is so high um, so I was kind of thinking, like, is this worth the hype? And if I if I do some of these charity raffles and I actually win a chance to buy the bottle, I'll obviously buy the bottle. But do I do what you did with the Dominguez? Do I just put it up yeah. and sell it to someone who can appreciate it? Or do I have to drink it myself? Like, I, I'm not a bourbon connoisseur, so I'm wondering if maybe the move would be to go ahead, sell that bottle, give some of the extra profits to charity, and then save some of that extra money and go buy a few nice bottles that are not quite pappy. See, I think that's key, and that's a very common overall sell tactic. It happens with card people. I see, um, you know, there, there's this new thing of breaking where people can spend low amounts to potentially get a team, and someone breaks a bunch of boxes, and they'll maybe get you know Jason Dominguez. You'll see people not want to spend you know a thousand dollars on a Yankee spot, so you might have a person sell opportunities at it, or same thing with a card. You know, you might have something that it's a thousand dollars, and there's not a buyer, so what you do is is you build off a raffle and you get your price out of it with a low buy-in price for other people. That makes a lot of sense with the Pappy. If I were you, Pappy's going for like, like let's say, you know, the normal bottles, like, you know, retail $129. They're probably reselling for like five or 600. In that instance, this would be me. I would hold I would buy it at retail and I would keep it because I like bourbon and I don't think the price I'm not trying to say that a couple hundred dollars isn't a big deal but the price point doesn't force me. It's like a trade, you know. Sometimes I tell people if I have an awesome prospect, I got Wander Franco or something like that. I'm not trading Franco. Like don't even come my way. The only way I'm going to listen is if you send something where I can't turn away. I can't ignore it. And we all know what those deals look like. So the same thing I would have in an instance with any type of unique uh, collector's item or or a bourbon. Most instances, I'm probably going to keep it just because of my personal preferences. But if it's something I can't ignore, like what the price of the Jason Domingos card was going, I'd have to sell that. Pappy, I, I think I'd hold on to it because it's something not people get to. A lot of people don't get to do, and you could probably share it, you know, with family, have a cool moment with somebody or friends, and you could create so many cool moments with that bottle of Pappy than a couple hundred dollars is worth. That's a really good point. You know, it, it would, you know, it'd be on the shelf for a long time. Like, I mean, legitimately, it it might take me fifteen years to actually drink it all, unless I had big gatherings, right? I mean, like it's like here's a scenario: DVR, uh, the Arizona Fall League is playing. You fly out to Phoenix. You happen to have brought in your bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. You call up your dear friend, Chris Welsh, and you say, Welsh, I'd love to sit down and have a little two-ounce pour with you. And I go, DVR, you are a swell guy. I'll take you up on that offer. That's just a, just a random you know, scenario. No specifics or anything <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, no, just that's, a that's random the type one. of thing that could happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Life is all about experiences. So, all right, you've convinced me. If I'm lucky enough to uh, win the chance to purchase a bottle, I will hold on to it for the experiences. Uh, and I probably will share it with you as I think you and I think Derek Cardi, I think you're the two people I know who are the most into bourbon. And now I'm going to get a bunch of emails and tweets from people who are like, hey, I'm into bourbon too. So if you get that hey, pappy. yeah, <laughs> don't forget me, DVR. Yeah, don't yeah. give it. But like, hey, Michael, yeah. I, I don't know if you're a bourbon guy, Michael, but like you two could, you know, share a little pour. Maybe that's how you break the bottle open on the podcast is you have a little yeah. pour and you do that right here. You're not going to say no, right? Michael? I'm not. In fact, I was. I am a bourbon guy and I was going to say that to DVR, you know, you could drive to Chicago from Madison much quicker than you could even fly from Madison to Arizona. So, you know, just come to Chicago, Derek. <laughs> just don't drink it before. Just plenty it plenty of takers yeah, for the sharing uh, of yeah. the pours of the Pappy Van Winkle. See, you're the most popular guy now, DVR. You're the most popular guy. You don't even have don't a even bottle have of Pappy. Yet. You're and... the most popular guy. <laughs> just, just the idea of having one has made me more popular. Uh, Welsh, before we let you go, let our listeners know where they can find your shows and how they could support you and Bogman and the great work that you guys do over it in this league. Yeah, if anybody wants to check it out, my Twitter handle is is it the Welsh? It's posed like a question because that was the early on people. You know, I I get called the Welsh and people are like, it's the Welsh. Yes, it is. Is it the Welsh? So that's a Twitter handle. The Twitter handle is going to get you everywhere if you are interested. Uh, in this league is uh, my home front. That's the podcast that I do with Bogman. We do the end of the league fantasy baseball podcast. Uh, we do the football podcast. We actually just had on Brandon Funston from the Athletic on the football podcast, which uh, just dropped today uh, on Friday. So you can find the In This League podcast where we do two a week on each sports. Prospect One is probably very relative to what people care about here, what we've been talking about. It's my solo podcast where I just do uh, prospects from a fantasy perspective. I interview uh, people around the industry. I interview a lot of players. A lot of what we've talked about, I've uh, I've had on, like I had Joe Adele on and a bunch of different hitters, and I've had a whole lot of them. So you can uh, catch all that stuff. And I do ranks. Uh, we've got a Patreon if you guys want to check it out. You guys or anyone listening is familiar with that stuff, but uh, in this league.com takes you there and there's a ton of stuff that people can check out but what my people might care about is the ranks whether I do I have dynasty ranks I do redraft and I have a top 500 prospect list for fantasy that's got a whole bunch of goodies on it so you can check that out but you know in this uh, is it the Welsh Twitter handle that'll you know help you find everything that uh, I do awesome be sure to check out that patreon support Welsh support Bogman they're great guys Welsh thanks for taking the time to join us today Hey, thank you so much, and I'm really excited for our uh, for our Pappy meeting. DVR, so let's do it. <laughs> Pressure's on for me to enter a lot of these charity <laughs> yeah. raffles. No, at this thank point. you guys. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you don't already have a subscription to the Athletic, you can get that at theathletic.com/slash/fantasy-baseball-podcast with a forty percent off discount for the first year. For Chris Welsh and Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns next week. Have a great weekend.